what will you do with the claims of Jesus? What will you do with the claims of Jesus? Because from how Jesus lived and what Jesus taught, even to the way Jesus died, it's clear Jesus wasn't simply a spiritual guru or just a good teacher. He wasn't just a man with some witty proverbs and some good ethical gems here and there. And he certainly wasn't a life coach trying to help you to be a better you. No. Jesus did things and said things that no man should say or do. The truth is, during his three and a half years of ministry, Jesus was controversial, divisive. He made some daring and audacious claims about himself that elicited very strong reactions from his hearers. Everyone around him. You kind of get a glimpse of this from the verses we just read. You see in verses 19 and 20 through 21 that his own people were divided over him because of what? Because of his words. Some people called him a madman. Oh, he's insane. He's demonic. And others said, well, is he? Others were more rational, yet they were still unwilling to believe. You see, Jesus was not the, pers- not the kind of person that you could easily brush aside and say, oh, yeah, Jesus, I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, good teacher, you know, really good with kids and, you know, awesome beard. I like him. No, either you loathed him or you were drawn to him. There was no middle ground. And that's really the purpose of the Gospel of John, this book that we are in this morning, these verses where we find ourselves. Because the purpose of the book of John is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in him. That is the purpose of of this book that we are in, and that is the purpose of these verses here. So whether you are seven years old this morning or you are 70 years old this morning, the content of this book, the content of our passage, is meant to confront you. It is meant so that you would see him face to face and consider the claims that he makes about himself. And the claims that he makes on you. That you might either say, he's crazy. Or, he's the Christ. You know, if Jesus is someone that you can casually be into. You know, someone who gives you good spiritual advice once in a while. Maybe twice a year. Maybe once on Easter. Then frankly speaking, you've never encountered Jesus. Because those who do must end up saying either he's crazy, he's demonic, or he's divine. So what will you do with the claims of Jesus? On this Easter morning, we see in our passage that Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And on the surface, it's a non-controversial claim. So why are people so divided about this? Why are some people ready to say, 
just to push him aside and say, this man is insane. And while others are saying, wait, we got to think about this a little bit more. Why were people so divided about Jesus when he calls himself the good shepherd? Well, we, most of us, understand this metaphor about a sheep and a shepherd. Uh, Certainly everyone in Jesus' time would have understood that this is a picture, an illustration of trust and protection and loyalty. It's a picture of leading and a picture of following. Uh, But most of us, when we think of shepherding, we think of this, you know, idyllic picture, right? In my mind, when I think of shepherding, I think of green hills and, like, the sun is rising and there's some clouds kind of coming over the hills and there's this shepherd and he's young and strong and tan and with flowing robes and he's kind of has a staff with him that looks kind of like a question mark and that's what i picture when i think about shepherding but da carson writes in his commentary many people in the industrialized west are inclined to think of shepherds as sentimental beings, perhaps somewhat effeminate, with their arms full of cuddly lambs. And the English adjective good does nothing to dissuade us from these misconceptions. But the shepherd's job was tiring, manly, and sometimes dangerous. So if you were a shepherd, you you had a mix of what might be called uh, soft virtues and hard virtues. A shepherd needed to be daring, I mean, King David, as a shepherd boy, it describes him in 1 Samuel 17 as when he's protecting his flock, that he would fight bears and lions and grab them by the, by the scruff of their collar and strike them. I mean, that is some daring stuff. If you, look, I'll be honest with you. If we were walking down the road and, I don't know, I was with you and a bear showed up, I'm running and I might push you down. Yet a shepherd was much, was, certainly had to be daring. But a shepherd was much more than that. Throughout the Old Testament, we see glimpses of what a shepherd is like. They're tender as one who gathers lambs in his arms, as we see in Isaiah. He's a, a shepherd is a ruler like David in 2 Samuel 5. He's compassionate like in Psalm 95. He's a protector like in Micah 4. He's a provider because we all know that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. One author describes shepherding in the ancient world as a subtle blend of authority, and care. But here Jesus is actually implying something even more. I think he's saying something more than he's just another good leader. He's not claiming he's another shepherd. He is saying, I am the shepherd, the good one, the good one, the preeminently excellent shepherd. I'm above all shepherds. You see, Israel had always been in need, had always been in need of a shepherd. They'd always been searching for the right shepherd. But they were always left with these broken, sinful shepherds. Uh, King David, as good of a shepherd as he was, always brought the people into sin. Uh, In Isaiah 56, Isaiah calls out Israel's shepherd. He says that they're lazy. They love slumber. They're without knowledge, and they turn to their own way. Jeremiah 23, the prophet pronounces a woe unto the shepherds of Israel because they destroy and scatter the sheep. Ezekiel says the same thing. Zechariah talks about shepherds that are only doomed for slaughter. Israel had always been waiting for 
the shepherd, the good one who would guide them. And so when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he is making a messianic claim. He's not just saying, hey, I'm, I'm a first-rate pastor, unlike those shoddy ones that you had before, unlike the ones that you have right now. He's saying much more than that. He's saying, I'm the promised last eschatological shepherd. I'm the one that everyone must follow. I'm the one who's going to lead you. I'm the only one who's going to lead you to green pastures and still waters. I'm the only one who will restore your soul. I am the only one who leads you in paths of righteousness. And so I exercise authority. I am the one you need. And so do you begin to start seeing why Jesus is so controversial right now to his hearers? Well, in, the rain, in these verses we see here from, from verses 11, to 20, uh, 11 through 18, Jesus starts explaining what makes him such a good shepherd. And each reason that he gives seems to be more controversial than the next. So the rest of the time we're going to work through those four reasons why Jesus is the good shepherd. The four reasons he gives for why he is a good shepherd. First, you notice that he loves them. Jesus is a good shepherd because he loves the sheep. And you're thinking, I don't see love anywhere in here. But you look at verse 14, Jesus says, I know my own, and my own know me. That word know is not just the superficial term of knowledge. This is the idea here of intimacy. The way a husband knows his wife. This is a picture of marriage that is here. And Jesus contrasts himself with a hired hand in verse 12. He says, I'm not like them. I'm not like those who are in it for the money. You know, uh, who has no, no skin in the game. He's, he says, I'm not the kind of person who says, well, it's none of my business. I'm just kind of punching a clock here. Kind of like a security guard who doesn't care that his bank is getting robbed because he's on his lunch break. No, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Not because I do it to make a living, but because I love my sheep. I know my sheep. And when the wolf comes, Jesus doesn't abandon sheep and run. run. He, he's concerned. He, he's passionate. His affections are stirred over his sheep. I, I saw this video recently of a, of a young girl who was at the porch of her home, and, and a raccoon was grabbing onto her leg and biting her leg. Did you see that video? And she's screaming her head off, and her mom runs out the door and sees this raccoon. And a pretty big raccoon. And this mom doesn't go inside and say, honey, there's a raccoon out here. Uh, she doesn't get a broom to try and prod him away, this little raccoon away. This mom jumped on the raccoon and grabbed it by the scruff of its neck. And you could tell she is frightened. And once she pries that raccoon off the daughter, the daughter, finally, she goes, run inside. And she, the daughter finally runs in. And the wife doesn't, you know, the mom doesn't know what to do. And finally she flings her into the yard and runs back inside the house. <laughs> now, we call that a mama bear, but I call that good shepherding. Right? 
how much more does God care for us? He knows us. He loves us. He's not like a hired hand. And in verse 15, Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. And then he says this, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Jesus is saying here, the intimacy of relationship I have with my people is mirrored with the way that I know my Father. Now here, he must have sounded like a crazy man talking. Because what is Jesus saying? He's actually making claims to his own divinity right now. That's what's happening. He's, he's referring to what Christians call the Trinity. In other words, Jesus is disabusing any, disabusing any, any hearers in thinking that he's merely a good teacher. Or any earthly leader in the pantheon of leaders. Now, if you've ever wondered what the big deal is about the Trinity, here's where the rubber meets the road. Because if you don't know how the Father and the Son relate to each other, you will not feel the depth of your relationship to God and with Jesus. The Father is one with the Son. He knows him. He sends him. He's, he is pleased with him. And the Son is one with the Father. He hears him. He obeys him. He enjoys him. There's perfect unity in the Father and the Son, a unity of being and essence and relationship. God loves the Son, and the Son loves God in a perfect love, in perfect communion, in perfect satisfaction, in perfect joy. No misunderstandings. No competing perspectives. The tr they truly know each other as any two people, any two persons can know one another before the world existed and for eternity. And so in the same way, listen here, in the same way that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, so God loves you. That's the kind of love. That's the kind of knowing he has of you. And so I ask you, do you know the good shepherd? Do you love him? Because it says here, he knows his own and what? And his own know him. Do you have any kind of relationship with God like this? Do you know him not as just Jesus as some outstanding figure in history, but the savior of your soul? Have you ever had any familiarity with Jesus? Because if not, perhaps you're a sheep without a shepherd. And you are not yet part of his flock. Church, I hope you see that God knows you and sets his particular love on you. Let this be a comfort. Because sometimes we think, oh, God loves me, but you know, I know he loves this amorphous group of people called you know, his children. He might love me, but I'm not really sure God likes me. You know, many of us, we hear the gospel presentation and we hear it like God is holy and loving. Uh, you're a sinner and God hates sin and can't be in the presence of sin. But don't worry, the cross comes with good news because now the father no longer sees you, but instead looks at Christ and his cross. And that message is true. But sometimes we take that message and we distort it in our own hearts. And we begin to think, Jesus is my shepherd, but he's only a shepherd to me out of obligation. And then we start dividing up the Trinity and fragmenting the Trinity and thinking, maybe God loves me because he loves Jesus. 
you know, I'm only hanging out with Jesus. Jesus is like the cool older brother that everyone is happy to have hang out, and I'm just associated with him, and so therefore he's happy to have me. He doesn't actually like me. But brothers and sisters, Jesus likes you. He loves you. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Jesus and the Father are never at odds. So church, you are not a number. He does see you and loves you. You're not just a bleeding voice among the flock. He knows you. And Jesus is the good shepherd because he loves the sheep. Second, Jesus is the good shepherd because he unites the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd because he unites them. When Jesus says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, he's thinking about the Gentiles, the nations. So he's first thinking about Israel. He says there's others that are not of this fold, and he's thinking about the Gentiles. And this is a stunning statement because it would have been unacceptable to his hearers. Because this is just more fuel for animosity towards Jesus because they resent the Gentiles. They can't believe that Gentiles, for them, they were just permanently outside of salvation. It's all about Israel and the covenant and the promises of God. And yet in Isaiah 49, 6, it says that my servant, referring to the Messiah, it would be too small of a thing for him to bring in the flock of Israel. Rather, he will be a light for the nations. That, the salvation, that his salvation would reach the ends of the earth. That's what Paul explains in chapter 3 about this mystery that the Gentiles are included in God's salvation. And so Jesus is describing a supernatural reconciling work. Now there are certainly unfortunate and sometimes unavoidable divisions among the people of God. Uh, this can come sometimes from theological discernment, sometimes from theological error. This can come from uh, sin, perhaps, or maybe not. But that's not the sort of division or oneness that Jesus is talking about. Insofar as there is true theological, spiritual oneness under one shepherd, there is only one flock. For Jews, Gentiles, blacks, whites, poor, rich, whatever it might be, old and young, Now, given our geography or social location, we might look around the room right now even and say to ourselves, well, there's a lot of people that look one way here. And I don't think we need to beat ourselves up over that. And yet we do want to ask ourselves if our community here is evidently supernatural. Brought together as one flock by one shepherd and under one shepherd. Because church... We are not a social club. This is not a place for you to have common interests and to hang out together. This is not a self-help society. We are a new creation, one flock. We don't wander into the fold. Is that what it says here? That we wander, we just trip into the fold, we just accidentally get into the fold? No, the shepherd brings us into the fold. We have all been brought in, Christian. And so the church should be a place where boundaries of economics, boundaries of politics, or education or social ability are broken down because we are one flock. Now, it's true that these days everyone wants to be in their own tribes, but Jesus changes everything. Jesus brings together hostile groups into one flock, Jews and Gentiles. 
Republicans and Democrats and independents. The world divides according to preferences. But what glorifies Christ is that all different kinds of people come together under faith and repentance in Jesus, young and old, single and married, hip, square, all together. This unity cannot be manufactured. It can't be legislated. It must come through the peacemaking and reconciling work of the Good Shepherd. Third, Jesus is the Good Shepherd because he loves them. He unites them. And third, Jesus is the Good Shepherd because he dies for them. He dies for the sheep. Four times in our passage, Jesus mentions laying down his life for the sheep. In a divinely arranged compact between the Father and the Son, it was agreed the work each would do to accomplish the work of redemption. The Father appointing and sending the Son, the Son willingly, freely giving himself up to be the shepherd of the sheep. So make no, exam- make no mistake, Jesus is not laying down his life to be an example. Uh, D.A. Carson writes again, the shepherd isn't throwing himself off a cliff while bellowing, see how much I love you. You know, that's not what's happening. No, he does this. Why? Because the sheep are in danger. There is a real danger. And so he must lay down his life for them. He gives up his life as a shepherd for the sheep. Voluntary, exchange, free, full, particular, perpetual. Why? Because sin is real. Because hell is real. Because God's wrath is real. And Jesus laid down his life to reconcile sinners to God. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He purchased with his blood men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what is going on. The good shepherd laid down his life once for all, infallibly, unconditionally, perfectly, effectually for his beloved sheep. And notice Jesus says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. That's what he says. I lay it down. My authority I lay it down. And let those words sink in. No one takes it from me. Now, we think about that because this is an awesome authority. There's probably no more awesome and authoritative and divine words in the Bible than this. It's very plain, but it's very forceful. No one, he says, takes my life from me. And you might think, oh, I know the Jesus story. Plenty of people take your life, Jesus. I mean, what about Judas? What about the mob? What about the Sanhedrin? What about the witnesses that come to testify against you? What about the crowds that cry, crucify him? What about Pilate? What about Herod? All these people are taking your life from you. And what do you mean no one takes your life from you? Well, what Jesus means is at every point where I look constrained and I look cornered and I look weak, trapped into doing this dying thing for you, He says, I'm not. I'm not. I wasn't forced into dying for you. Dying on the cross wasn't a misadventure for me. Every step toward Calvary was chosen. It was embraced. It was welcomed. No one takes my life life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. My love for the sheep is free. He's emphasizing this, I think, 
Because if, it wasn't, if, if his death was forced on him, if his heart wasn't in it, then there would be a question mark about his love for us, right? But the depth of his love is in its freedom. Verse 18, he says, this charge I've received from my father, simply showing that the father's heart and, the, and, the, and Jesus' heart are the same. Here's the depth of his love, the freedom of it all, the willingness and even the joy Jesus takes in laying down his life for the sheep. He loved us with all his heart, not a fraction of it, not with a slight inclination or some cosmic force making him doing like, okay, I guess I'll do it. That's not our Lord. The shepherd was willing and able, eager. And I would dare say it was his joy to live and die for the sheep that they may live. Well, fourth and finally, Jesus is the good shepherd because he lives. Because he lives. Here we see the good news of Easter. Notice what Jesus says in verse 17 and 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again, is what he says. This is a very unusual shepherd indeed. Anyone who makes a statement like this is either mentally deranged or lying or God. He says, I have authority from inside death as a dead man to say, I'm going to rise. But this is the heart of Christianity. That Jesus, the good shepherd, did not stay dead because Jesus is risen. You hear that? He is risen. <laughs> He's alive and continues to rule and protect and provide and bind up and unite his flock. The resurrection was not a hoax. It was not a hallucination. If Jesus did not rise, then he is not a good shepherd. It would mean that we are still dead in our sins. It would mean that he could not lead us. It would mean that he is not, no longer the first fruits. It would mean that everything that we're talking about this morning is in vain, but he is risen, and he is risen indeed. And he is more alive and more present, more the source of life than any earthly leader, any earthly guru, or any earthly parent or pastor. This is the good shepherd that will never leave you nor forsake you, for lo, he is with you till the end of the age. This is our good shepherd. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I ask you again, what will you do with the claims of Jesus? Friend, he's, he's a shepherd like no other, isn't he? Do you know him? Do you know this reconciling God who dies and is forever alive again? Do you hear this morning your shepherd calling to you right now? Do you hear his voice? Are you listening for his voice? Will you respond? Will you come into the fold? He's bringing you. He's drawing you to himself. So stop wandering and follow him.
Church, as we close off here, you should know that your pastors are mere under-shepherds of the Good Shepherd. I hope you take heart in knowing that, yeah, your pastors will visit you in the hospital, but the Good Shepherd will never leave your bedside. Never. I hope you take heart that, yes, your pastors will grieve over you, over your lost children, but the Good Shepherd carries them to himself and heals your broken hearts. Your pastors will tell you that you were born again. I'll tell you how you were born again. It's only the good shepherd that witnesses by his spirit that you are a child of God. Your pastors will counsel you with fallible wisdom, but it is the good shepherd who guides you personally with his eye upon you. Your pastors will warn you to fight sin, but it is only the good shepherd who knows your frame and fights for you. Church, you have a shepherd, a good one, one who loves you and unites us, lived, died, and rose again. Let us continue to draw near to him, to follow after him as he leads us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Resurrection Sunday and an opportunity for us to Remember the work of Christ upon the cross and his glorious resurrection for a new life. And we ask even that in these next few moments, as we witness these baptisms, that we could see death and resurrection being pictured for us. May you receive all glory, honor, and praise. And may we follow the Good Shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.